Well, let me tell you a parable, okay? This isn't, this isn't one of Jesus' short stories. This is one of Jim's short stories. I just made this one up, all right? Uh, it's a story about a guy uh, who loved to swim. I'm going to call him Mr. Swimmer, okay? Mr. Swimmer. Once upon a time, Mr. Swimmer had a really good friend who loved him and was fairly wealthy, owned a pool company. And this friend loved Mr. Swimmer, wanted to give him a gift of love, and so he thought, I'll build him a pool. So he waited for Mr. Swimmer to go away on a vacation break, and he built this gorgeous pool in Mr. Swimmer's backyard. I mean, it had slides for his kid. It had a hot tub in it. It was beautifully landscaped. It had a fountain coming out of one end. And he could hardly wait for Mr. Swimmer to get back from vacation and see this pool. And so Mr. Swimmer comes back, and his friend is waiting at the end of the drive, and uh, takes him to the backyard and watches with joy as Mr. Swimmer's jaw drops. And all he could say is, I can't believe you did it. Why would you do this for me? And his friend, he kept replying, because I love you, dude. You know, I love you, man. This is great. So after they visited for a a little bit, uh, the friend had to go. And he's, oh, by the way, he gave Mr. Swimmer a book. He said, this is a pool maintenance manual. I wrote it myself. He said, but it's really important that you follow the instructions. It'll tell you how to keep your pool in good shape. You know, you need to vacuum it every day, and there's stuff you got to skim off the top, and you got to add chemicals so the water's the right consistency, and clean out the filter, and all this other jazz. And so he left, and Mr. Swimmer took the book and threw it in the drawer of a desk, promptly ignoring it, because he's, you know, he wasn't much of a reader, didn't like to follow instructions. Fast forward a couple of months. A couple of months later, uh, there's a doorbell ringing at Mr. Swimmer's house, and he goes to the door, and there's his friend, big cheesy smile on his face. He's got a beach towel in one hand, a swimsuit in the other. He's dropped in just to go swimming with his buddy, Mr. Swimmer. A look of shock crosses Mr. Swimmer's face, and as, as he's walking his friend through the house to the back patio, he's trying to come up with a good excuse for why the pool is in such horrible shape. Okay, there's scum on the bottom of it, algae or something. There are leaves and debris on the top of the pool. The filter is no longer working. It's clogged. It's backed up. The water is cloudy. In fact, Mr. Swimmer has stopped swimming in the pool. It's so bad. End of parable. It's okay if I end abruptly because I'm not very good at this, writing parables yet. But what, what does this parable mean? Well, in my, my parable, the, the wealthy, loving friend represents God. Mr. Swimmer represents every one of us, okay? And the gift that's given, the pool, represents the gift of life which God gives us. And the book, the maintenance manual, of course, is God's holy word. God's word which instructs us how to live life. Now, here's the main point of my story. Out of his great love for us, Out of his great love for us, God has given each of us not only the gift of life, but also a manual for maintaining that life in prime condition. So so the Bible, which contains God's rules for life, is an expression of his love for us. This book is an expression of God's love for us. God's love and his law, his rules, go hand in hand. Now, we're we're in the fourth week of a seven-part series Uh, that's going to take us through the holidays called Experiencing God's Love. And today's topic may come as a bit of a surprise to you because we're going to discover that one significant way to experience God's love is through his life-giving law. 
Okay, one of the most significant ways to experience God's love is through his life-giving law. Now, maybe you're skeptical about what I just said. You're skeptical because you grew up in a rule, with a rule-obsessed parent, or you, you grew up uh, at some point in time, you were tyrannized by a rule-wielding teacher or coach or boss, and so love and law just don't go together in your mind. Well, there's an entire book of the Bible that closely associates God's love with his law. It's the book of Deuteronomy, and it's one of our texts for today. So if you would turn to the fifth book in from the front cover of your Bible, the book of Deuteronomy, we're going to park in two different Bible books today, Deuteronomy and Romans. So we'll get to Romans in just a little bit. Let me give you some context, some background for Deuteronomy. The name of the book Deuteronomy, it's a Greek word. It comes from the Greek translation of the original Hebrew Old Testament. Uh, it's a compound word. Deutero means second, and nami or namas means law. So this is the second presentation of God's law. Let, let, let me explain why it's the second. The first presentation of the law came at Mount Sinai. Now, God's people had been delivered uh, from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. They were on their way to the promised land. They stopped along the way at a place called Mount Sinai. Moses went to the top of Mount Sinai, met with God for 40 days, came down with the Ten Commandments, came down with God's moral law. Okay? Now, if you know the rest of the story, they continued on to the promised land, but when they got there, they balked. Okay, they, de they decided not to go in and take it. They decided not to trust and obey God who was saying, hey, this is the land I'm giving you. Go in, take it. And they refused. So God said, okay, if you don't want it, uh, I'm going to let you wander around for 40 years in the desert till every single naysayer dies. And so all of the naysayers at this point of time, they've, they've passed on. It's 40 years later, as Moses writes Deuteronomy, and he reiterates the law. Okay, he gives them God's law, the same law that 40 years earlier he had presented to them, having come down from Mount Sinai. He gives them a second presentation. That's why the book is called Deuteronomy. And, and this book repeatedly emphasizes the close connection between God's love and God's law. Let me give you a few examples of what I'm talking about. If you're open to Deuteronomy chapter 4, drop down to verse 7. Moses is speaking and he says, What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near to us whenever we pray to him? Now, we've, we've got a God who's near to us, uh, Moses says. He, you know, this God loves us. And then he continues. He says, What other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I'm setting before you today? God's law. So his love and his law go hand in glove. Turn over a couple of chapters, Deuteronomy chapter 7. I want you to see it again. Verse 11, Moses says, Therefore, take care to follow the commands, decrees, and laws I give you today. He's talking about God's law, but he continues, If you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them, then the Lord your God will keep his covenant of love with you. As he swore to your ancestors, he will love you and bless you. Again, you got God's law and his love going hand in hand. One more passage. Turn over a couple more pages. Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 to 15. Moses says, what does the Lord your God ask of you? Skip a couple of lines. But to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. God's law. 
To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it, yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, God's love and his law. Once again, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Moses repeatedly mentions God's love and his law in the same breath. They're connected again and again in the book of Deuteronomy. Why? Because God's love is an expression of God's love to us. His law is an expression of his love to us. You want to experience God's love? In fact, let's not make that a rhetorical question. I'm asking you. Would you like to experience God's love? Good. Then you need a working relationship with his law. You need a working relationship with his law. And this is where we go to the second book I want to take a look at, the New Testament epistle of Romans. So flip over to Romans chapter 7, and as you're turning, I love the sound of turning Bible pages, so turn them loud, okay? As you're turning to Romans chapter 7, let me give you some background on the Apostle Paul who wrote this New Testament letter. All right, Paul was immersed, he was saturated in God's law from earliest childhood. He'd been born into an Orthodox Jewish home, which meant in that day that, that at the age of five, you began your formal Bible instruction. So he was memorizing large chunks of scripture as a five-year-old child. When he reached the age of 10, he began a study of the legal traditions associated with Judaism, God's law. Okay, by the time he reaches age 13, he's bar mitzvah. Bar mitzvah means literally son of the commandment, son of the law. That's what you become, you know, an expert in God's law. And at that point in his life, his parents set him off from his hometown of Tarsus to the city of Jerusalem to study the law, God's law, with the most famous rabbi of the first century, a guy named Gamaliel. And at the uh, age of young adulthood, then Paul became a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. So, so Paul knew God's law inside and out. His life was saturated with God's law. How did that help Paul experience God's love? Well, that's what we're about to find out in Romans 7. There are three things here that God's love reveals that are indispensable to experiencing God's love. So if you want to experience God's love, three things that his law reveals. Here's number one. If you're, you're jotting down notes on your program, it's God's commands reveal our sinful, self-destructive nature. Okay, God's commands, his law, reveal our sinful, self-destructive nature. Now, if you're open to Romans 7, drop down to verse 7, and one of the Bible study tips I've taught you is always look at the headings of a passage, because they're, they're a giveaway to what the theme is. So in my, my Bible, and I suppose in many of yours, the heading is the law and what? Sin. The law and sin. This is a passage. We're going to learn about the relationship between God's law and sin in our lives. So verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Is the law a bad thing? Paul says, certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. And then he gives a specific example. I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So God's commands reveal our sinful, self-destructive nature. Happens in a couple of ways. First of all, God's commands identify sin. 
Okay, they shine the light on what's wrong in our lives. They, they, they tell us this is what you need to do, this is what you need to not do. And, and so the light where, you know, the sin, the wrongdoing in our lives is exposed by God's law as we encounter it in our daily reading of, of, of Scripture. There's a story told about a desert nomad who was asleep one night when his, the grumbling of his stomach woke him up. He was hungry. And so he lit a candle next to his bed and he reached for a bowl of dates, which was there for that very purpose in case he was hungry in the middle of the night. And he took a bite out of one of the dates and he looked and, oh, there was a worm in the date. So he spit it out and he tossed the date aside and he, he pulled out another date and he took a bite and, ah, oh, there was a worm in this date and he tossed it aside, spit it out. And he went through several more dates, same thing happened. And he suddenly realized he was going to make it through the whole bowl and still be hungry at this rate. So you know what he did? He blew out the candle and continued to eat the dates. <laughs> That's one way to deal with sin in our lives. Just get rid of the light and we won't see the worms. See, God's commands are the light. God's commands identify sin, sin in our actions. This is what sinful behavior looks like. Sin in our words. Okay, here are sinful words. It's gossip and it's lies and it's this and it's that. It reveals truth in our attitudes. So what what did Paul say about God's law in verse 7? He said, I wouldn't have known that coveting was a sin. You know, coveting means wanting more and more stuff. Something we fall prey to this time of year, right? Wanting more and more. He says, I wouldn't have known that was a sin if I hadn't seen it in God's law. Coveting is, is, is a sin. Now, by the way, that's commandment number, number 10 of the big 10, the top 10 moral commands. You shall not covet is number 10. Do you know the other nine? Do you know the many commands that are sprinkled by God throughout the pages of his word? See, the extent to which we don't know what God's law says, that's the extent to which sin goes unidentified in our lives. You say, well, is that such a big deal? Well, yeah, it is a big deal. I mean, you could blow out the light and keep eating the worm-infested dates if you want to. You could ignore the sign at the ramp to the expressway that says, one way, do not enter. But if you ignore the sign, if you blow it off and you pull up, uh, onto the expressway going the wrong way, you're in a lot of trouble. You're going to get hurt. You're going to do something dangerous and self-destructive. That's the point of God's word. You know, here, here's what sin looks like. And if, if you blow it off, if you blow out the candle and continue to eat the worm-infested dates, you're going to hurt yourself. By the way, just a side note here, one of the books that I read in preparation for this series, I read it back over the summer knowing we were going to do this series. It's called God Loves You. Wonderful book by Dr. David Jeremiah. In fact, we got copies at our resource bookshops across our four campuses. It would make a really great Christmas gift. God loves you. God loves you. And one of the chapters in the book is devoted to the Ten Commandments, spelling out what the Ten Commandments mean and why it's an expression, why they're an expression of God's love for you. God's love for you. So one of the things that God's commands do is they help us identify sin in our lives. Otherwise, we wouldn't see it. Now, ironically, we're, we're pretty good at seeing sin in other people's lives, but we just don't see it in our own unless we're daily reading God's word and coming across his commands. I don't know if you've seen the Christmas movie yet, The Man Who Invented Christmas. Have you seen it? It's a really good show. Uh, just came out, and it's a movie about Charles Dickens who wrote that tale about Mr. Scrooge. 
And what you'll discover if you, you go to the movie in the story, and this isn't a spoiler alert, is that Charles Dickens himself, while he's writing about this uh, tight-fisted, hard-hearted, cold, miserly Mr. Scrooge, he himself in his own personal life was behaving that very way toward his parents. His parents had great needs, and he could have met those needs, Dickens could have, and he turned a cold heart toward them. And as I watched the movie, I thought, well, that's pretty much the case with Dickens. He's one of my favorite authors, and so I've read his biography just a couple of months ago, read a biography. And, and Dickens, what, you know, on the one hand, he was known for his, uh, his generosity toward the poor, toward children, started orphanages, and, and so in his personal life, he turned his own kids out of his home, kicked them out. Okay, on, on the one hand, he'd write these stories about endearing married couples who were in love with each other. In his personal life, he was very unkind to his wife, cheated on his wife. Okay, publicly, he was a guy who loved social justice. He was behind the causes of the day. But on a personal note, nobody could ever approach him with his wrongdoing because he would just blow you off. See, this is how we're bent, friends. We're, we're, we're not apt to see the sin in our own lives as much as we are to see it in the lives of others. So you read God's word and you come across his law, his commands, and they identify sin in your life. Second thing they do is they, they actually stimulate sin. Look at the very next verse. After Paul says... In verse 7, I wouldn't have known that coveting was sin unless God's law had said so. In the very next verse, verse 8, he says, But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandments, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. So Paul says, I, I read in God's law that coveting is sinful, and you know what that does to me? It makes me want to covet more. You say, this is strange. Well, no, it's not at all. If you're walking through a park and you see a park bench and it's got a sign and it says, wet paint, don't touch, what do you want to do? Yeah, you're chuckling because you know what you want. You want to touch it. You see everybody else's fingerprints on it, right? There, there's something about God's law. He says, you need to do this or don't do that. And we say, uh-uh, going to do what I want to do, right? So in a sense, God's law stimulates sin in our lives, so we recognize it as such. It, it brings it to light. I've got a, a, a friend at Christ's community who is a woodworker, and uh, just a couple of weeks ago, he gave me a gift. Actually, he told me it was for Sue. It's a, 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 a meat carving platter, and the meat carving platter is made of many kinds of wood, probably half a dozen different kinds of wood, all different colors, and he said, now when you take this platter home, what you need to do is rub some cooking oil into it, because the cooking oil brings out the colors of the various uh, kinds of wood. See, this is what God's law does in our lives, friends. It brings out our true colors. When you read God's word daily and you come across his commands, it not only identifies sin in your life, it sort of brings it to the surface. It stimulates it so you, you see it and you say, oh, you're wondering, well, why is this a good thing? Why is it good to have this revealed to us? And how does this relate to experiencing God's love? Okay, our second point. Number two, God's commands reveal our need for a savior. God's commands reveal our need for a Savior. Go back to Romans 7. Drop down to verse 18. Uh, Paul's openness in this chapter, by the way, is pretty amazing. 
if you've never read it before, the first time you read it, you'll say to yourself, I can't believe this is in the Bible. I mean, his, his, his vulnerability as he talks about a personal problem here, a problem we all have, is uh, it's just amazing. Verse 18, he says, For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. And I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. You ever struggle with what Paul is describing here? Of course you have. You ever want to do something good on on impulse? You know, you you hear about the Lord's work, some aspect of ministry, and you say, I'd love to write down a, you know, sit down and write out a big check of generosity toward that. But you don't. Or you see a friend at school who is, maybe it's not even a friend, it's just another student who everybody else ignores, sitting by themselves in the school cafeteria, and you're thinking, I ought to go sit by them. But you don't. You know, you got a mom in a nursing home, aging mom, and you say, you know, I I ought to go visit her. But you don't. You know, you don't do the good you think you should do. And and, and on top of that, you know, the the bad you don't want to do, you know, I don't want to gossip. I'm in the middle of a conversation and I'm tempted to talk about somebody else and I'm saying I'm not going to gossip. I'm not going to. And you gossip. You, know, you say, I don't want to hold this grudge. I know this bitterness is eating me up inside. I don't want to hold a grudge. And you find that you're still got your grip on resentment. You know, I don't want to watch porn. You end up watching porn anyway. It's the bad you don't want to do, you keep on doing. You understand what Paul's describing here? Paul's a mess. So are we. Drop down to verse 24 where Paul tells us how he got out of the mess. Verse 24, he says, What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that's subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Are are you following what Paul's saying here? the, the, The logic goes like this. You know, I didn't know about sin, really, until I started getting acquainted with God's law, and then it brought to the surface the sin, my sinful, self-destructive nature. And what's worse, I realized I could do nothing to change it. Every time I wanted to, 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 do, to do good, I couldn't do the good I wanted to do. When I didn't want to do bad, I found myself doing the bad I didn't want to do. And I, and I recognize the fact, I need outside help. Okay, who's going to rescue me from this predicament? Paul says, Jesus can. Jesus can. God's commands reveal our need for a Savior, and Jesus is that Savior. Now, how does Jesus do it? Okay, how does Jesus do this saving work, saving us from our sins? Two ways. Quick little theology lesson here, okay? Jesus saves us positionally, and Jesus saves us practically. Okay, Jesus saves us positionally, and he saves us practically. Start with positionally. Our position, friends, before God as habitual sinners is not a good one. Okay, we're, we're in a bad place. In fact, the Bible calls it death. I've, I've explained this to you many times. When we go our way instead of God's way, and this is something we do every day of our lives, multiple times a day. We go our way instead of God's way. We disconnect from the one who's the giver of life. 
When you disconnect from the one who is the source of life, the consequence is death. This is why the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Okay, that starts with spiritual death. You disconnect from God, you experience alienation from God, spiritual death, and that leads to physical death at the end of this life. And if this problem isn't fixed by you in this world, you go into the next world prepared to face eternal death. Okay, that's the penalty, the consequence for sin. Now, the Bible tells us that God loves us so much that he sent his son, Merry Christmas, he sent his son to live a perfect life and then lay down his life on the cross. So Jesus' death takes the penalty we deserve. The penalty's death. Jesus dies the death we deserve. And so everyone who surrenders to Jesus now is given the gift of forgiveness and life, new life that begins immediately and continues on into eternal life. Have you ever surrendered to Jesus? Have you ever told Jesus that you want him to be the, the, the savior, the king of your life? Okay, this is where it begins. When you make that decision, something changes, something very fundamental changes in your position before God. Jesus saves you positionally. But Jesus also saves us practically. Practi you see, we would, we would still be miserable if Jesus saved us from sin's penalty, but then he left us in the grip of sin's power on a daily basis. You know, we would conclude, well, great, Jesus took the death my sins deserve, but I still can't make, it, make myself do the things I want to do and stop doing the things I don't want to do. You know, what, what, what good is this, practically speaking? Well, Jesus also saves us practically. He saves us every day if our hope and our trust is in him. How does he do that? Well, the minute you surrender your life to Jesus, the Bible says he sends his spirit, God's spirit, to come live on the inside of you. And God's Holy Spirit empowers you to do the things you really would like to do and to stop doing the things that you don't want to do. Here's an interesting observation about Romans 7, the passage we're looking at today. In Romans 7, verse 7 to the end of the chapter, there is absolutely no mention made of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so Paul's just struggling. And as we, we've seen, the, the struggle leads him to the place where he says, I'm in the grip of sin, my sinful nature. So I can't do what I want, want to do. I can't avoid what I don't, don't want to do. Who's going to save me? And then at the end of the chapter, he makes this decision to surrender to Christ. Jesus will deliver me. If we kept reading, what we'd find as he goes into chapter 8, he turns a corner. And it's like he's now large and in charge of, of life thanks to the Holy Spirit that he's received. He surrendered to Christ. The Holy Spirit of God has come to live on the inside. He's now able to live the life he always wanted to live. So the last part of Romans 7, Holy Spirit isn't mentioned at all. In Romans chapter 8, the Holy Spirit is mentioned 22 times. This is the gift you get when you surrender your life to Jesus. He begins to save you practically on a daily basis, releasing you from the grip of sin by sending the Holy Spirit to come live on the inside. Now, only Jesus does this. Only Jesus does this. I was uh, speaking a couple of weeks ago for a friend's company banquet. So uh, my friend owns a local company, and every, uh, every year, the day before Thanksgiving, he throws on a, a big banquet for his employees, several hundred employees. 
And he gives them this delicious meal and he passes out bonus checks so they, they've got money to spend through the Chris, Christmas holidays. It's a wonderful place to work. In fact, it's been named the number one small to mid-sized business to work at in the Chicago area. It's number 43 on the Forbes, uh, Forbes list of best companies to work for. So I'm really proud of my friend and the job he does. And I get to speak, I've been doing this for years, I get to speak 20 minutes before they all get their meal. Uh, you know, it's intimidating as a speaker when the only thing that stands between you and a good meal is this guy up there speaking, right? So, but I get to talk about Jesus every year. And so I, so I do. You know, those who don't want to come don't, don't have to come to this part of the banquet, but the hall fills up. Everybody comes. And so I finished, and I sat down at my banquet table with Sue, and uh, people were milling around, and the waiters and waitresses were beginning to bring the food. And one of the company's leaders came over to chat me up. And I've, I've met this guy before. He's uh, just a wonderful man, comes from a different religious background. And so he put his hand on my shoulder, and he thanked me for my little talk. And he said, isn't it wonderful how all of our religions, our various religions, teach us so much about how to live a good life? And he said, and ultimately, they're all pretty much saying the same thing, aren't they? Now, this was not the time or place to have a theological discussion with my friend. And, and here's what I would have liked to have said to him. And at some point in the future, maybe we'll have this discussion, he and I. What I wanted to say to him was, no, Christ, Christianity is dramatically different from every other religion. And let me tell you why. In Christianity, you, you find a Savior who will save you positionally before God. Your sin deserves the death penalty. You're pulled apart from the God who's the giver of life. And there's only one religious leader I know in the history of world religions who offers to give his life in your place, and that's Jesus Christ. Nobody else will take your penalty. And not only that, he not only saves you positionally, nobody but Jesus can save you practically so you could do the things you want to do and stop doing the things you don't want to do anymore. See, every great religion will tell you how to live, whether it's the five pillars of Islam or it's the sevenfold path of Buddhism or it's the Ten Commandments of Judaism. But here's the problem, friend. We can't live according to the law that any religion gives us. It's only Christianity that says, we'll give you a savior, Jesus, who will come to live on the inside by his spirit and empower you to live the life you've always wanted to live. Christianity is dramatically different because it's Jesus. God's commands reveal our need for a savior. The savior is Jesus. Number three, God's commands reveal the way to experience God's love and blessing. God's commands reveal the way to experience God's love and blessing. Now, some Bible teachers hold that the only purpose for God's law, the only purpose God's law serves is what we've already covered. You know, that God's law was given to reveal our sinful, self-destructive nature so that we would seek out a Savior. But once we find that Savior to be Jesus, these Bible teachers say, then, then we're done with God's law. We don't need God's law anymore. You know, the Holy Spirit's now living on the inside, and all we need to do is, on a daily basis, uh, respond to his spontaneous promptings. Now, there is some truth to this position. In fact, in Romans 7, we started at verse 7, but the first half dozen verses, uh, Paul says in verses 1 to 6 that he has actually died to God's law. That when he surrendered his life to Jesus, he died to God's law. But that statement needs to be qualified. Died to God's law in what sense? 
in, in the sense that Paul was no longer depending on his law-keeping abilities for right standing with God. See, the, the, the law had been of no help to Paul at all in that regard. See, on the, on the one hand, the law had been a righteous standard to live by, but on the other hand, it had no power for, for Paul to pull it off. The law is not a very good savior. Okay, the law is a great standard of righteousness, but it can't save you because none of us could keep it. So Paul's trust was now in Jesus. It was not in the law. It was in Jesus for his salvation. In that sense, he had died to the law. But did that mean that the law had no ongoing purpose in his life now that he was a Christ follower? Sure, the Holy Spirit now lived on the, on the inside, leading and directing and empowering his life. But how does the Holy Spirit do that? How does the Holy Spirit guide our lives into what is right and away from what is wrong? The Holy Spirit uses, friends, God's law to do that. You know, this is the book that he himself originally inspired human authors to put down in print. And as we follow the Holy Spirit's leading and directing as he takes us into God's word, God's law, we find ourselves on the path of God's love and blessing. God's law leads us to the path of God's love and, and blessing. The Holy Spirit uses God's law to do that. This is why Paul doesn't diss the law in Romans 7. You know, in one sense, yeah, he's died to it, but he doesn't put the law down. In fact, look, look at verse 12. He says, so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. I'm not putting down God's law. It's holy, it's righteous, it's good. Drop down to verse 14. He says, we know that the law is spiritual. Spiritual is a word that just means it's come from God. This book has come from God's hand. Verse 16, I agree, middle of the verse. I agree that the law is what? Call it out. Good. The law is good. Verse 22, for in my inner being, I delight in God's law. Paul sounds like the psalmist here, Psalm 19, Psalm 119. The psalmist says over and over again, I delight in God's law. I love God's law. Can't get enough of God's law. I was having lunch with a friend of mine recently. And this guy, he leads a business, but he's on the side, he's a private pilot because he's got to fly around a lot for business, so he does his own flying. And I, I said to him, I haven't seen you in a while. And he said, well, I, I was spending two weeks uh, getting trained on my new jet. And I said, oh, tell me about that. So we got into talking about his jet and flying it and whatever. And he said, the one cardinal rule of piloting a plane is you've got to trust your instruments. He said this two or three times, you've got to trust your instruments. And he said, if you try flying by instinct, if you, you do instinctively what you think is the right thing to do, you're going to die. And so he told me recently about a, a time just a month or so ago when he was landing his jet in DuPage Airport. And there was a, a cloud cover that dropped down to just 200 feet off the ground. I'm trying to imagine this. You're flying in the clouds, and from the moment you break out of the clouds, you got 200 feet to hit the runway. And so he even he showed me on his... Uh, phone. He said, this is what it looked like out of my windshield. It's a picture out of his front windshield. And I'm thinking to myself, how do, you, how do you land a plane in cloud cover like that? And his answer again was, well, you don't trust your instincts. You follow your instruments. Friends, how do you do the right things and avoid the wrong things in the, the cloud cover of life? 
you follow God's law as led and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And when we do that, listen, when we do that, we experience God's love and God's blessing. Let, let me take you back to the book we opened with, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 5. Okay, I want to go back to this book that combines, connects God's love and his law. Look at Deuteronomy 5, verses 32 and 33. Moses says, be careful to do what the Lord your God has commanded you. Do not turn aside to the right or to the left. Walk in obedience to all that the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live and prosper and prolong your days in the land that you will possess. Paul says, pay attention, or Moses says, pay attention to God's word, and if you do, you will live and prosper and prolong your days. Go over a couple of chapters, chapter 7. Verse 11, Moses says, Therefore take care to follow the commands, decrees, and laws I give you today, because if you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them, then the Lord your God will keep his covenant of love with you. Want to experience God's love, Moses says? Walk in obedience to God's law. He will love you and bless you and increase your numbers. He will bless the fruit of your womb, the crops of your land, your grain, new wine, and olive oil, the calves of your herds, the lambs of your flocks. See, why does God give us his law? Because he's a stickler for rules and wants to make sure we don't enjoy life. Truth be told, that's what many of us think. You know, God's laws are given to suck all the joy out of life. Are you kidding me? God's law is a gift of God's love. God's law is a gift of God's love. It marks out the path on which you are sure to experience God's love and blessing in your life. And that's why we encourage you, you know, to make a daily habit out of reading God's word, discovering his commands for yourself. And every day you pick up and, and read it, make sure that you walk away with an application. What is God telling you to start doing or to stop doing? In fact, this is true not only of those times you pick up the Bible and you read it on a daily basis. Maybe you're following our Bible-savvy reading schedule. But it's every time you get together with your community group. It's every time you hear a sermon like this. You, you walk out with a view to application. What does it take for me to be on the path of God's love and his blessing? What do I need to obey? You know, the, the, the guys in my men's community group, they get tired of hearing this from me because it's the drum I'm always beating. You know, we're following the Bible Savvy reading schedule, and so we get together on Monday, uh, Wednesday mornings to share our insights. And you know, just after a guy will offer some great insight, he wrote in his journal that week about a particular passage, I'll say, great insight. How did you apply it to your life? How did you apply it to your life? What are you going to do with this truth in God's word? Okay, what are you going to obey? What are you going to start doing or stop doing? This is where the blessing, this is where the experience of walking with God, experience his love in your life, this is where it happens, friends. You know, we, we provide, by the way, if you're wondering, how do you get an application out of the Bible? I read the Bible. How do I get a life application each day? In our Bible Savvy Journal, we have a whole section that explains how to do this. So if you haven't picked one up, new one comes out every three months. They're available at the resource shop at any one of our, our campuses, or you could put the phone app on your phone and download it, not only each day's reading, but also an explanation. This is how to get a practical application out of God's Word from what you read. 
And we do this for kids, too. Our Bible Savvy Journal for Kids is not called Bible Savvy Journal. It's called Epic. And our Kids World team is tremendous. They have put together a website. Okay? If you go to the church's website, there is a link to a special site that covers all things Epic. Okay, it will give you Bible resources, it'll give you videos to watch with your kids about the passages you're studying, it will give you tips on how to lead your kids into a conversation. I hear from a lot of, a lot of parents, you know, we're trying to do this, but this is hard initially. You know, to read the passage of the day with our kids and how do we help them get something out of it. That's the end goal, getting something out of it for their lives. Okay, being drawn close into a relationship with God as they learn how to walk in obedience to him. There are even testimonials, by the way, on that website of parents who figured out good ways to do it and testimonials of parents who have failed. Epic failure, right? A little joke there. Uh, so go to the website. If you're a parent, and we're going to give you a card when you go to pick up your kids at Kids World today, you're going to get a card that tells you how to access all that really cool information. Application leading us to experience God's love and blessing. God loves us, and that's why he's given us his law. May his law reveal to you your sinful, self-destructive nature so that it will drive you to seek a Savior. And having put your trust in Jesus, may you learn to love God's law and immerse yourself in it on a daily basis so that you, you know how to experience God's love and his blessing in your life to the full extent. 